Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode Color and Light, a brief history of lighting design on Broadway. More light. Color and light. There's only color and light Yellow and white Just blue and yellow and white My guest today is Tony Award-winning lighting designer Ken Billington, who created the lighting for an incredible 105 Broadway plays and musicals, including 21 productions that were directed by Harold Prince. Ken's amazing career spans from his first Broadway credit in 1967, when he was the assistant to legendary lighting designer Theron Musser, all the way to his most recent Broadway show, the hit musical Waitress. Along the way, he designed the original productions of Sweeney Todd, On the 20th Century, The Drowsy Chaperone, The Scottsboro Boys, The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, starring Lily Tomlin, as well as three revivals of Fiddler on the Roof, two revivals revivals of Sunday in the Park with George, and the still-running 1996 revival of Chicago, for which he received the Tony Award. I have had the great pleasure of knowing and working with Ken for more than 40 years, and it is always fascinating and always a delight to speak with him. Theatrical lighting design is relatively a very young art form. Its history begins primarily in the early 20th century, just as the Broadway musical was being invented. Lighting design's earliest innovators include the American actress Maud Adams, most famous today for her performance as Peter Pan, as well as producer, director, playwright, and theater owner David Belasco. One of the recurring themes of this podcast, and one of my obsessions, is how the art and craft of the Broadway musical has been handed down directly, firsthand, from artist to artist, from craft person to craft person. Ken Billington's long career, and especially his early experiences as the assistant to the pioneering designers Peggy Clark, Pat Collins, Tom Skelton, William Rittman, and Theron Musser, make him the ideal guest for this episode. Here we go. 
So welcome, Ken Billington. So great to have you today as my guest on Broadway Nation. So good to be here with you, David. Everything about the history of the Broadway musical is what this podcast is about. And one of the subjects I've dealt with a little bit in the past is the history of lighting design. I thought, who better to talk about the history of lighting design with than somebody who I think has worked with most of the lighting designers of the 20th century, 21st century. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, you know, yeah, I worked with most of them and knew most of them. It was interesting. I'm not 150 years old, but... You started very, very young. Yeah, I did. You know, I didn't go to college mainly because I couldn't get in. And back in the 60s, the only place you could go to college for lighting, well, there were a couple, but Carnegie Tech or Carnegie Mellon was about it. And I didn't get in, so I just started working on Broadway. I mean, it sounds pretty silly, but I took a lighting course in New York at the Lester Polikoff Studio in Form of Stage Design. It was Saturday mornings, three hours, there were about five or six of us in class. And my teachers in that class were Peggy Clark, Tom Skelton, and Chuck Levy. And that was my introduction. And from there, I met everybody. And by the time I was 19, I was assisting on Broadway. This was the late 60s, and everybody was still alive and doing it because, you know, we're a very young profession. You can't go further back than electricity. Uh, Right. The way design started in the theater is David Velasco had his chief electrician, Lewis Hartman, create lighting effects, lighting and effects, it was called in those days. And Hartman had a workroom in the basement of the Belasco Theater where he invented things, including the spotlight. I mean, I know that sounds very silly, but somebody had to invent it. And he went to GE and had to make light bulbs for it. And Belasco, because this was before communication, if you wanted to talk to the guys, you yelled at them, you know, from the fifth row. And Belasco would do technical rehearsals for days because it was mostly arc lights. A one set play would have a bridge right down at the edge of the stage with probably seven to 10 operators on it running the arc lights. And there would be some out front also, but you couldn't cue them. They just had to learn the show. So these technical rehearsals would go on forever and they would do buzzers or something they could hear to know they'll change the color. But they would have to work all night and around the clock. And Belasco was very concerned about lighting. There's a great quote where he said, lighting is the lifeblood of the theater. He was first. But, you know, people like Ziegfeld just made sure the girls look good and you bring the pink footlights up or whatever you would do. But it took Abe Fader in the mid-20s, came up with the term lighting designer. He used it to light a Broadway show, that term. Abe Fader, so people know, lit such shows as My Fair Lady and Camelot and all the WPA shows for Orson Welles. He sort of invented our world. But before that, and continuing even after he came up with that, it was done by the electrician. Producers had their chief electrician. They were the electrician for that theater, or did they bounce around? They worked for the producer. Now, the producer may have owned a theater, but they would do the producer's shows. They knew what the producer wanted, and the set designers would get involved also because the set designers wanted their sets to look good. So it would be the producer and the set designer talking to the electrician and saying, well, you know, we should have some more blue, and the electrician would bring up more blue. And by the way, it's not saying these weren't sophisticated, well-lit 
shows. It just wasn't a designated designer doing it. Then the scenic designers, I think, to save themselves, started doing it. The great scenic designers like Joe Melziner and Howard Bay and all them, they did their own lighting, but they usually had somebody do it for them. They didn't actually draw a light plot. They would have an assistant do it or the electrician. I remember that Joe Melziner would tell the, uh, I heard this story, that he would tell the electrician, well, we need two colors of backlights and two colors of sidelights. I need a blue and a lavender in the backlights and we'll use the pink for the sidelight. And the electrician would go off and create a light plot. And then they'd sit with the electrician and say, okay, bring the blue backs up full. So they knew the blue backs were plunked into dimmer 12 or something. They were inventing a form of design which hadn't existed. And then Abe Fader started doing it, and he became very successful doing all those Orson Welles things. And he was also the production manager. And his assistant was a lady by the name of Jean Rosenthal, who became one of the foremost lighting designers in theater. Her last show was Dear World, which I think was the late 60s. Jean Rosenthal started lighting shows, and she became Martha Graham's lighting designer. And Martha Graham was very interested in what light would do. So Jean was doing that. She was also production managing. She was lighting shows. It was basically Abe and Jean and set designers. And then a lady by the name of Peggy Clark came along, who I assisted, actually. And Peggy was the first person to ever get her name on a poster. And that was for Medea, I think, in 1944-45. But she lit such shows as Brigadoon. She did everything in the 50s and early 60s. How she started is she worked with Oliver Smith as his scenic draftsman. And Oliver didn't want to know anything about light. So he said to Peggy, you light them. And she became the lighting designer and did 85 Broadway shows from things like Bye Bye Birdie, Brigadoon. She did all the early Jerome Robbins shows, High Button Shoes, On the Town, Wonderful Town. She was a major force, but it was basically Abe, Jean, and Peggy as the lighting designers. In the 40s, that was about it. And going back just a bit, a name that's come up for me is Hazard Short. What do you know about Hazard Short? Hazard Short was a producer, director, and I think the byline said entire production directed, designed, and lighted by Hazard Short. He was an impresario who oversaw his complete production. It would be like you when you were at the Fifth Avenue, you produced the shows and you directed a number of them. And oh, yeah, you sat down to the lighting, too. You know how you go about that. I don't know. But <laughs> unlike myself, he's credited with putting lighting on the balcony rail for the first time with inventing that. At least I've read that several places. Well, you know, there used to be arc lights out front. And if you look at old pictures of theaters, even the New Amsterdam still, in the front of the balcony, not the mezzanine, but the balcony, you'll see it's like a little opera box stuck on the front of the balcony. And that's where the spotlights went. Right. Because everything was lit with arc lights from the front. And I remember working with Peggy. Peggy would use, uh, you'd do a big musical and you would have three follow spots to follow the actors who were talking. And then there'd be a fourth follow spot there that was just framed to the front of the stage. You would put different gels on it. So that would be your blue wash, your pink wash, your amber wash, whatever the show needed. 
run by a follow spot operator. You've opened that spot to encompass the whole stage, basically. Right, or you closed it down just to the clump in the center. I actually did not know that Hazard Short did a balcony rail, but that would make sense because spotlights were not very bright. They were 150, 250 watts of incandescent light bulbs. You know, a 100-watt light bulb in your living room was brighter than a spotlight was, but shows were darker. If you look at the original light plots from shows in the 40s, like Guys and Dolls, you'll see... 24 lights on the balcony rail, 500 watt, 36 degree. If you did that now for guys and dolls, I don't know if you would ever get to turning them on because you'd be fired before that. (laughs) But you know, the audience in those days wasn't so used to having it blindingly bright. They were also used to listening. They didn't have sound equipment. Right. You know, now if the sound goes out, Nobody can hear anything. And I think it's because people don't know how to listen. And it's not that they don't know how to see, but they're used to seeing things in the theater at a brighter level than they once were. And in their homes, everywhere is brighter than it would have been back in those days. Absolutely. And, you know, when we look at our TV monitors and we make them as bright as we want, or just look at a theater before the curtain goes up with everyone on their iPhone, And it looks like footlights through the entire auditorium that probably are about as bright as the ones on stage. Let's go back to Peggy Clark. What was she like? You got to assist her, not in the 1940s, of course, in the 1960s. Well, she actually was a groundbreaker. And I remember certain stories that she told me. She did tell me that when they went out of town with Brigadoon, they were in New Haven. And when she went to focus the lights, the stagehands would not allow her on stage because they said that was a man's job. And stagehands were all men. That was a man's job. And she was not to come on stage and tell them what to do. She had her head electrician with the show. So she stood in the front of the mezzanine and yelled to the head electrician, her head electrician, of how to focus the show because she wasn't allowed on stage. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back with more on the history of lighting design on Broadway, including the experience that inspired Ken Billington to become a lighting designer. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. 
Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So that brings up a whole subject. This starts with Gene Rosenthal and becomes very strangely a technical profession that is largely dominated by women for a certain period. How did that happen? Is it just because Gene Rosenthal started it and everybody decided, oh, well, if she can do it, that's something we could try to do? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, well, you know, the union I belong to, the United Scenic Artists, which covers all the designers in the theater, television, motion pictures, motion pictures on the East Coast. To join, there was no category for lighting design until the 60s. Before that, you had to be a full designer. That meant you had to design scenery, costumes, lighting, and be able to paint the sets too, be a scene painter. So people like Peggy were also a scenic designer. Theron Musser, who started in the mid-50s, 56 was Long Day's Journey into Night, never wanted to be anything except a lighting designer. And she always told me she had a hell of a time passing that union exam because she didn't know how to design a costume, nor did she want to. But you had to do that at the time. You know, there were women doing costumes. There were women doing scenery. Women were not unknown in the world of design. And there were choreographers. I mean, Agnes DeMille was doing pretty good stuff. And, you know, Eva Legallion was directing, so there were women directing. I think it was just there was an opportunity there. Again, you must remember, it wasn't taught in every university in America. It was taught at very few universities. And lighting specifically, I think it was probably taught at Northwestern, Carnegie Tech, and Yale. Other than that, you took design and there was a little bit of lighting in it. Or you just jumped into the profession like you did. Yeah. By the way, I can't draw a picture. I can't sketch. I can do none of that. So clearly, I think of myself as an artist. I paint with light. But is that a God-given talent? I have no idea. I did learn the technical part of it. But when to turn the light on and off and make it pretty, I just think that's me. I don't know how you teach all that part. Let's follow up on that. So how did you get to being a lighting designer? You were interested in the theater, I'm assuming, and that led you down this path. How do you get there to 19 and decide I want to be a lighting designer in New York? Well, it goes back to the fourth grade. And I don't know how old you are in the fourth grade, nine maybe. 
10. We did a play in school, and it's a much longer story, but ultimately I ran the lights for the play. There were light switches in the elementary school auditorium, which was in the suburbs of New York. It had a balcony. It was a proper auditorium. It wasn't the cafeteria. There was no colored lights. There were just some light bulbs on battens overhead and footlights. And I ran the lights. And I remember doing a blackout, radical, in the fourth grade. Uh, <laughs> and it was knife switches, uh, big old period knife switches. And I remember we needed this blackout and gingerbread men turned into little boys. So it wasn't Hansel and Gretel. The show escapes me. Anyway, I uh, did this blackout and a girl next to me, Sherry Zimmerman, <laughs> slammed some symbols together. After I pulled the main out, I pulled all the other switches out so I could fade the lights up, which meant turn them on one at a time, put the main back in, brought the lights up one at a time, and the grammar school cheered. They applauded and cheered, and honestly, that's all I've ever wanted to do, and I've been doing it ever since. That is amazing. I love that story. And, and it's true. That's all I wanted to do. I didn't know about lighting design. I knew it was lighting. My parents weren't in the theater or the arts, but that's all I wanted to do. And then I got into the junior high school, which was in the high school and had a proper theater. And I joined the community players and I did lighting. I did a lot of lighting and got out of high school wanting to be a lighting designer, knowing exactly what I wanted to do and couldn't get into college. So I just started assisting on Broadway. And who did you assist first? Uh, the first person I assisted was Tharon Musser. And after working with Tharon, then I worked with Peggy at the Jones Beach Marine Theater. Following that, I worked for William Rittman, a set designer who did his own lighting in a lot of shows. Tom Skelton, a lighting designer who started in dance and moved to theater. Who else in that period? Leo B. Meyer, Pat Collins, I worked with her. I started working for everybody because in New York, I was like the go-to guy as assistants because assistants weren't as prevalent as they are now. Many designers didn't have them or producers wouldn't pay for them. And I know when I started, I was paid by Theron Musser. The union didn't represent assistants in lighting. So my education was being an assistant and working with these great lighting designers and working with great directors. You know, I did a George Abbott show. I mean, I did John Houseman shows. I worked with all these stars and set designers. I mean, I worked with everybody as a kid. I was the assistant and I was there watching these famous people and really famous, creating shows. And that was how I learned how it all came together and how they did it. And it was a fabulous way to learn. That experience of being in the room to watch those people work is irreplaceable and obviously contributed to what you've been able to do in your career. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I remember with George Abbott, the show was The Fig Leaves Are Falling, big famous flop starring Dorothy Loudon and Barry Nelson. We were out of town in Philadelphia and it was not going well. But George Abbott, you know, he had started doing musicals in the 20s, directing musicals. So he was a bit of the talking to the electrician guy. <laughs> and we were in tech and the follow spot operator, the head follow spot operator, was George Abbott's head follow spot operator. It wasn't somebody Darren Musser wanted. It was somebody George Abbott wanted. Wow. Can't remember the guy's name. And he was 
older, like George Abbott was in those days. And George Abbott would stand in the front row and turn around and scream, pick her up left, get the girl up left on her entrance. And you'd hear from the booth yelled back to him, I got three lights, you have four people talking, put two people together. All right. And he put two actors together. And this had nothing to do with the lighting designer. This was George <laughs> Abbott working with his spot operator to make sure that people were lit. And we got to the first preview of the show. Standing in the back, I was standing next to Theron, and George Abbott was next to Theron. And he came up to her and he said, Theron, it looks great. You're a real artist. Looks great. She said, thank you, George. And he said, now I just have one note. Turn the lights on so I can see them. <laughs> and, you know, to him, it was about seeing everything. Yeah, clarity. And the ground plan is about where the doors were. We've come a long way since then, but that's where it was. I watched that happen, so I got it. I understand about seeing people. And you said the word clarity, because if you can't see them, you can't hear them, basically, or you have to strain to listen to them. And of course, we threw that out with the drowsy chaperone that we did the first eight minutes in pitch black. But anyway, still got the laughs. Go a little further into describing technically what shows looked like. What year is this that you're doing the assisting? What sort of decade is this? We're like 67. 67. Shows look good, though. I must say, shows did not look bad. They were not as sophisticated. We didn't have a computer operating them. So we had men, usually on a musical, three men, and they were all men in those days, operating the six manual lighting boards run by three men. You'd set the look, and then you'd set the next look, and then they would figure how to get all these handles to go from one to another, because it was just manual, and there would be strings involved, you know. They were choreographed. The lighting operators were choreographed. I remember the famous story on I Do, I Do at the opening of the show. Gene Rosenthal was lighting the show and they were having a hard time going from the first scene. And Gower Champion went backstage, watched what the guys were doing and choreographed the three lighting operators how to do it. I can remember being in college and running the lights, probably using the equipment you were using in the 60s on Broadway and having you have one hand on this lever and another hand on this one and using my knee on the other one to get all three levers to go at the same time. Right. The only person running the lights on this production. Right. And the other thing is we did not have technology. There were no automated fixtures that hadn't been invented yet. There were no color changers. If you wanted to change the color, you took the light and took the red out and put the blue in, you know, a piece of gel. Shows had to be carefully thought out in those days because if you wanted to blink from red to blue, you couldn't do that on the same board. You'd have to put that on separate boards. So this guy with his left hand was turning off the reds while his right hand was turning on the blues. So you had to think about operation. You had to think about all the colors. You couldn't in the middle of the show say, you know what, this should be a red number. Oh, no. Because you had to think about how are we going to operate this? By the way, the directors knew that also. So the director, and I did 21 Hal Prince shows, so working with somebody who came from that 40s era. From the George Abbott era. Yeah, totally got it. And you'd be doing a show, a play or whatever, and you'd get a phone call from the state 
stage manager, usually some point during the first week of rehearsal, a phone call. We didn't have email. And they would say, hey, they have Mary entering through the up center doorway, but she stands in the doorway and does the first few lines. You'll probably need a special. So that to me was, oh, I better put a special that lights the doorway for the actress who's sitting there. And then a week later, you get another phone call from the stage manager. Then this was all coming from the director. In act two, they have Mary standing in the doorway again, but it's nighttime. So you probably need the same light and blue. I got that from the director and the stage manager so we could save time when we got in the theater. Because they're thinking ahead. What's going to slow us down? What is Ken going to need to have done? Right. And so if I didn't have a light that I could put there to make blue, I would adjust my light lot so I could get something to get a blue light in that doorway. So they were thinking along with you. And well ahead of time, you would be told, maybe we should bump from red to blue in this dance number. So you knew how to lay it out so the men could operate it. And then when you would get into the theater, because it was manual control and you were doing it for the first time, you got to the first transition to go from scene one to scene two. And then you'd go and run it. And if the winch was too slow or the drop didn't come in or whatever, the directors say, well, let's run that again, but don't back up the lights because they were moving the handles as they needed. You didn't know where these 72 handles were. You'd have to go back to the very beginning beginning and work your way into it. And directors knew that. Sometimes they would say, let's wait for lights, but it'd be 10 minutes. Or they would know that we would see it in the dress rehearsal and fix it. But they knew that. They knew you didn't wait for lights or you waited for lights. But they knew it took a long time. They didn't blame anybody. That's just what it was. Right. So interesting. What would you say, either one of your shows or just a show you saw, pre-computer light boards, what was the best looking show or some of the best looking shows that you saw on Broadway? That Today we would go back and say, that looks fantastic. Still to this day of the best show I've ever seen, the best lighting I've ever seen in my life was Follies, which was manual control designed by Theron Musser, a Hal Prince show. It, it just kept taking my breath away. And I remember it like I saw it yesterday. And one's Follies, 1970. It was good. By the way, it would have worked today. You know, a few years ago at Encores, we did a chorus line. And since I did most of the Encores, I did about 44 of them, they were doing it. It was the original production. So they wanted to use the original Theron Musser lighting that she had won the Tony for. And I remembered the show being brilliantly lit. Natasha Katz had done the revival on Broadway. Natasha wasn't available. So she sent me all the paperwork of hers and the original paperwork of Theron's. And I said, oh, I'll just copy. So I put what type of fixtures we would use today, and I put it in the colors that she had specified. Those colors weren't made anymore. I had an old shell book. I matched them. I read the cues into the console. I had a list of what the cues had been for a chorus line. And famously, this was the very first Broadway show that used a computer lighting board. Is that correct? That is correct came from the public theater. How did it end up being the first show? With- well, it was a five-scene preset at the public theater, and it took three people or four people to operate it. When they came to Broadway, Theron did a computer, uh, the first computer that sometimes worked. It was custom designed, but it was a big breakthrough. So it was one man hitting a button as opposed to an army of people trying to make it work. Because the preset board, though you could go from Q to Q easily, somebody had to change all the levers to get them preset in the right place. 
Right. But anyway, I'm doing this at Encores and we get to tech rehearsal and it's da-da-da-da-bum-bum. And the first light cue comes on and I was blown back in my seat. It was beautiful. I had nothing to do with this. I just did what was written down. The front lights were a little too bright because of the equipment we had today. So I pulled them down a couple points and I went through. And when we got to what I did for love, I'm sitting there, we're running the cues and I started to cry. It was so exquisitely beautiful, you know, and that was the seventies. That was 75 actually. So I thought, you know, there's always been good lighting. Nowadays, we have many more tools. We have a computer. We have hundreds of automated lights. We can make anything, any color we want and put a cue on every beat if we want to. All we're limited by is space and budget. Do we have the budget to get all this equipment? Because probably what your listeners don't know is there is no lighting equipment in any Broadway theater. And there is no sound equipment. There's no scenery. There's no dimmers. There's nothing. There is a ghost light sitting on the stage and everything else belongs to the production. The seats and the curtain belongs to the theater, but everything else belongs to the show. So the theater is one of the last things that is handmade. Yeah. Every set is custom designed and handmade. Every light, the type of light I want is rented and put where I want it. Not because that's where it can go or that's what was there. It's what the show requires. There's no excuse for anything not being perfect because everything is made for the show. And what your limitations are is usually space. You know, a Broadway theater Figure 30 feet as big, 27 sort of normal, playhouses less. If you can get it into 27 feet, you can do anything you want. But you have to leave room for the lights, and lights take 18 inches. So if you need four pipes of lights, that's six feet out of that 27 feet that you need for lighting. That leaves 19 feet for scenery. (laughs) Which is never a problem between you and the scenic designer, I'm sure. No, we never have that problem. (laughs) So then how do you make this jump from assistant to designer, Broadway designer? Yeah, so it was interesting. You know, I was working with the best people, working on a lot of, you know, I did something like 30 some Broadway shows as an assistant, not counting all the national tours and everything. I was going to Europe. I mean, doing everything. Just give us a few of the big names of the shows that you did. Not all of them were hits, but uh, MAME. I was not the assistant on the Broadway production, but I did all the national tours, Las Vegas, London. And when it moved theaters from the Winter Garden to the Broadway, I did the move. So MAME plays like the original production of The Birthday Party. A lot of flops, but things like opening Forge Theater in Washington, D.C., doing the first show in there since the assassination of Lincoln. Some of the other Broadway things, there were lots of musicals. Maggie Flynn, The Fig Leaves Are Falling, A Mother's Kisses, Blood Red Roses. None of these were successes. Plays like After the Rain, Everything in the Garden, Not Successful, The Promise, Not Successful. So there were a lot of shows. Do you think it's true that you learn more from the flops than you do from the hits? Well, you know, what I became good at is when you watch it as much as we do watch shows, not shows in general, but when you're watching that particular show through two or three weeks of previews. Every night. Yeah. And I learned at a young age, that doesn't work. I would say to myself, I'm, oh, am I going to go up to Harold Pinter and say this doesn't work? But 
you know, you see what the audience reacts to. You see that when it's a full house, this works. When it isn't a full house, it doesn't work. Or this works at matinees, but doesn't work in the evenings. And by just sitting there and being an observer, you see what happens. And then to see how people fix it and that you restructure a speech not cut the speech, restructure it, take out seven words in it, and it works better. And that you take a musical that feels endless and you cut one scene. I did a musical not too long ago and it felt like it was two in the morning. And we cut a scene and that night we played it. And boy, it felt like we got out at 11 o'clock. You know, it didn't feel like three in the morning. And we had a production meeting and the author was very attached to every word and said to the stage manager, how much time did we save? And the stage manager added it up and said, we cut uh, one minute and 52 seconds, to which the author said, well, that doesn't make any difference. Put it back. Well, it did make a difference. It shortened the show by hours by getting rid of one scene. And it wasn't actually in physical time. It was in perceived time. And the author just didn't get it. While we all got it. I'm sitting there saying, yeah, we got this. I've seen that happen also. The show suddenly has momentum that it didn't have before. And you just feel like it flew by. Did you see any designers, line designers, make mistakes that you were able to learn from? Well, it was very interesting. When I was doing Applause, that was a hit, actually. That was a big hit. Uh, applause with Theron. We were out of town, and she was lighting the show, and there was transitions, and I thought she was lighting it all wrong. Now, this, to me, is probably the world's greatest lighting designer that ever lived. And I thought she was lighting it all wrong. And I said, oh, what you really need is the blue whatever, and this and this and this, it would be fine. And then I said to myself, being smart about all this, I said, she knows what she's doing. This is what she does. If I think it's wrong, then I have to go out and get my own jobs and do what I want. And that's when I stopped being an assistant. And of course, that decision to stop being an assistant would eventually lead Ken to becoming one of Broadway's most acclaimed and most prolific lighting designers. And he'll share the story of how that came about on the next episode of Broadway Nation. Kiss today goodbye And point me toward tomorrow You can hear more about the careers of Jean Rosenthal, Theron Musser, and the other great women of Broadway lighting design on episode 8 of Broadway Nation, which is titled Agnes DeMille and the Women That Invented Broadway. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Kiss today goodbye And point me toward tomorrow Point me toward tomorrow We did what we had to do Won't forget, can't regret What I did for love
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.